fun thing, though, is at the very least, my talk almost to the day coincides with the publication of the paper. Nice. And uh, it'll be fun to get to share the celebration of that with Sandra in person. Yeah. Um, while we're in St. Louis. Kind of I had first thought of the fact that you haven't been in person with Sandra for quite a while now. Yeah, I'm just a lone dog. I like literally just work from home and sit around on my own all the day now. That's my <laughs> life. I'm a total fucking hermit. It's super weird. I feel that. Yeah, it's so not my favorite. <laughs> so, glad for the podcast, tell you that much. <laughs> right. <laughs> yep. And that podcast is Super Duper Super Duper Stitches. Welcome to it. The Paranormal Podcast. About science. About the science. Behind. Of the strange. Yeah. And the supernatural. Uh-huh. And also, I'm just going to go out on a limb here and say the weird. <laughs> I'm Wyatt. I'm Jake. And we are back again this week. Um, well, really, we're back in the same week, but it's next week. But we're back in a week that is a different prior. week, but it's the week that was the week also before. Because mm-hmm. we... I will be... At the Entomological Society of America. Yeah, we're recording like, what, two days after we recorded the last one? Three days? Oh, yeah. 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 Thanks for joining us again or for the first time. Jordan, if you are checking in this (laughs) week, you are welcome to listen to this episode. You're off the hook for now, but you're on thin ice. Keep uh, tapping those toes, Jordan, for some reason that I don't fully understand. (laughs) You're on notice. (laughs) I can't tell you... Honestly, how much joy it gives me to be privy to a bit that I do not actually <laughs> fully get, but can participate in in some way. <laughs> do you want to know the context? No. Okay. I don't. I enjoy it much more. For <laughs> Last week, I thought it was because she was perhaps afraid of dogs or kicked a dog you owned once, and so she could not listen. But now, she's done something worse. Where were we? Wait, I guess we could just tell what the episode's going to be. <laughs> Yeah, if I'm not mistaken, today we're going to be talking about weird ape stuff. Ape shit after our dog Yeah, shit. really. <laughs> Every episode from here on is going to be <laughs> shit, whatever kind of thing. Yeah, aping around today. Um, and as it is an odd episode, allow me. Oh, I Unless will. Unless we have other things no, to... Um, no, God, no. Top. No. Okay. Well, I will be sharing with you today... The story of the Deloys ape, <laughs> um, which many listeners may have heard of. I know, Jake, you're at least familiar with the name, if not the full story. This was something that I only really knew about once you first told me about it as we were brainstorming the show before we actually started the show. Right on. Yeah. So, in 1920, the Swiss-French geologist Francois Deloys led a fatigued party through miles of the Venezuelan-Colombian jungle. Three years earlier, Deloise had begun his journey deep into the jungle with 20 men, searching for geologic evidence of soil er, soil deposits. <laughs> it's everywhere! It's everywhere! Um, of oil deposits. Uh, that makes a little more sense. Yeah, a little bit. <laughs> I've heard there's a thing called soil in South America. Um, brown gold, they call it. So by this point in their wildly unsuccessful journey, however, disease and fatal skirmishes with the indigenous uh, Motolone tribe had whittled the group of half its count. My apologies if I'm mispronouncing their name. Um, Though the petroleum treasure explosion evaded him, Mm -hmm. Deloise was about to stumble upon an arguably much more important prize on the banks of the Tara River that day. As the group rested near the water, two large shadows appeared in the tree line. Loud, angry howls and screams erupted from the forums before both emerged from the dark green of the jungle. They were ape-like, but walked bipedally like humans, approaching slowly while angrily shaking nearby branches. As the men gathered themselves in response, the irritated monsters began swinging torn branches like weapons and heaved their own feces towards them. Exhausted and terrified, the team fired their Winchester rifles at the creatures, killing one and driving the other back into the trees, howling in agony, never to be seen again. Wow. As the adrenaline slowly faded, Deloise propped the large creature's corpse up on a crate, supporting its head with a stick, and snapped at least one irrefutably creepy photograph, which, let's take a moment and look at that now if you want to Google it really quick. I just typed D and it went straight to it. <laughs> Auto-filled. Oh, you mean Deloise Ape. Okay. Deloise Ape. 
I had to search it yesterday. So <laughs> nice. Yeah, I was gonna say just constantly searching it over and over. Oh God, Jake, what are you doing? Bookmarks. Yeah, it's your number one tab every day. It is um, a pretty. It is a pretty eerie looking image. It's an eerie image. If you are on the road right now and this is the first time you've ever heard of this, it's worth looking up. It's clearly a dead monkey, but it has been propped up on a little box and there's a stick jutting down from its head to the ground to keep its head sort of upright and its eyes have sort of fallen open its mouth is slightly open so it's got this kind of ghoulish death stare death stare straight into the camera um and because there's not much in the way of scalable foliage or persons or structures or anything in the background it's really really hard to tell just how big this thing is yeah so the animal resembles a spider monkey, but the story goes, stood approximately five feet or about 1.57 meters tall, wow. had no tail, and bore 32 teeth, just like a human, and four less than expected for a New World monkey. The crew purportedly, after taking this photo and a few others, skinned and cleaned the remains to take with them for the remainder of the prospecting voyage. Unfortunately, so the story goes, in the remaining months, more deadly skirmishes with native tribes, unpredictable circumstances, and general jungle conditions caused the remains and any additional photos to be lost or left uh, somewhere in the jungle. Oh, uh, how some, convenient. I tell you, some versions of the story even offer that the skull corroded beyond scientific evaluation standards because... It was stored this, in acid... Practically, it was used as a crude salt container. Oh my god. <laughs> which obviously is what any of us would do with the skull of a first-of-its-kind monster, if yeah. I'm not mistaken. Seriously. Oh yeah, do you guys still have that very frightening giant ape skull that attacked us? From, you know, you remember the one? The only one that ever existed? Oh, sorry, it's a cookie jar now. Oh, okay, good call. I'm glad you did that. Oh no, the cookies have corroded the skull. <laughs> yeah, we eat only salicylic acid cookies. Yum. Sally's Cooks. <laughs> so, before I go any further, I just want to ask you to join me in taking some time to savor the freaky look of that photograph. Yes. The feeling that just maybe somehow the story might, could possibly be sort of true-ish, kinda. Ah, oh, it's so times. nice. So good. All right. So, chapter two of this tale. After Deloitte's return to Europe, apparently... His encounter with this monstrous, human-sized, aggressive monster ape slipped his mind. In fact, his incredible story was not reported publicly until just 70 years before The Matrix came out when his friend <laughs> George Montandon discovered the photograph while pursuing, or pursuing, <laughs> he was pursuing Deloitte's files for information, um, <laughs> while perusing Deloitte's files one. for information about South America's native tribes. At Montandon's racist-ass urging, Deloise related his account in a sensationalistic article published by the Illustrated London News of June, uh, dated June 15, 1929, entitled, Found at Last, the First American. <laughs> and three further articles uh, regarding the creature were also published in French journals. Uh, you may already have gotten a whiff of what's to come from this. Montandon did what many self-described cryptozoologists of our day would. He looked for evidence in support of his idea hmm. that the Deloitte's photo was of a real creature. He even went so far as to suggest the scientific name of Amaranthropoides loisi. So basically, Amar being America and Anthropoides being some sort of anthropoid or humanoid mm -hmm. creature, uh, loisi. So... Why, you might be asking yourself, was Montandon so interested in validating the creature? Well, it turns out Montandon was a major proponent of the then popular hologenesis hypothesis, oh. which is a deeply, deeply racist theory suggesting that, and at this point I'd invite you to pause the episode and get any Trump supporters out of the room in case they accidentally internalize anything I'm about to say. <laughs> Okay, cool. So, suggesting that different racial groups of Homo sapiens evolved independently from different non-human ape species, oh, rather wow. than sharing a common ancestor. Jesus Christ. Yeah. I can't imagine where what bad thing could come from that particular idea. No, exactly. 
it's kind of one of those rare concepts that manages to be as abominably racist and revolting as it is just jaw-droppingly stupid and scientifically <laughs> inaccurate. Uh-huh. <laughs> um, it, it follows a particular principle that we'll actually kind of cover in my segment. So Excellent. Very cool. Yeah, suffice it to say, Montandon was thrilled at the possibility of there being a New World South American non-human ape because he could hold it up as a possible ancestor of indigenous peoples of that area. Mm. Uh, so this all begs the question, why is the hologenesis hypothesis wrong? <laughs> Let me just list a few reasons. <laughs> if you can come up with any, I mean, it seems pretty airtight. Uh, you know what? I'm going to take a swing at it anyway, all right. <laughs> just in case I might be able to find one. Um, it makes the impossible suggestion that descendant and ancestor species somehow live contemporaneously. This is impossible, <laughs> but by definition, you don't live with your ancestors. They're dead. They're ancestral to you. <laughs> it suggests that thousands of separate ape lineages miraculously converged on a single descendant species independently, which is biologically impossible and not how evolution works. Mm-hmm. There is such a thing as convergent evolution, but this is the process by which separate and often distantly related lineages independently evolve traits that are similar in form and function. They're not identical. Right. And often as a result of environmental selective pressures that are consistent and act in consistent ways on those species. So, you know, the most obvious and perhaps readily accessible example is the various forms of locomotion. Exactly. The ability to fly, the ability to swim with fins. These have evolved repeatedly and in very distantly related taxa. They take a lot of very very different forms, but they just do the same thing. But they accomplish the same thing, exactly. Um, and finally, modern humans do contain the genetic material of several other distinct ape species, or hominid ancestral mm-hmm. species, but this is the result of interbreeding followed by extinction. And we can still detect these various species in our collective DNA. Hologenesis suggests instead that we would see completely separate species all become the one we see today, Mm. independent of one another. It's impossible, and it's deterministic, and it sucks. And it's super fucking racist. Yeah. So, fortunately, in the years since... I'd just be curious what they think Europeans evolved from. If they're trying to look for a separation between different groups... Yeah, right, exactly. What's their answer for, oh, why why are we different? That's true. I, uh... Yeah, what would they even hold up? Hmm. Probably uh, the driven snow. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, it's it's all garbage. Um, in the years since the Deloitte's ape photo and story have made the rounds of consideration, it is only the most credulous crypto heads that maintain the possibility of this creature being a real thing. Mm-hmm. Specifically as, you know, a separate large South American ape as opposed to what it in all likelihood is, which is the image of a spider monkey. Mm -hmm. Um, As spooky as the image is, there's not much in the photo by which to gauge scale. And despite not showing any tail, all physical evidence captured suggests nothing more than what I've just said. White-bellied spider monkey, Ateles, Belzebuth. Further, some careful-eyed skeptics have noted the presence of what appears to be the stump of a banana tree captured in the frame. This is a plant that is not indigenous to South America and suggests that the shot was taken somewhere else entirely. Huh. All that said, very large spider monkeys did once occupy the New World. Hmm. Protopithecus brasiliensis, which is now extinct, weighed in the neighborhood of 22.6 kilos or 50 pounds and featured limb bones nearly twice as thick as modern day spider monkeys. Wow, more like tarantula monkeys. Oh am I right? Am, you couldn't possibly right? be more what? right. Yeah. <laughs> Get out. Uh. <laughs> anyway, if all of that was not enough, 70 years after the first public divulgence of the Deloitte's ape tale, the 1999 July through August edition of the Venezuelan scientific magazine, Interciencia, published a letter sent in 1962 from Dr. Enrique Tejera, to the editor, Guillermo José Sachel, of the magazine Diario El Universal. You guys can trace all that back really clearly, right? (laughs) (laughs) With that pristine pronunciation, it's impossible to get it wrong, really. It was all just one long name. I hope you all got that. (laughs) But right, this guy, 1962, writes a letter to another guy claiming the following. 
This monkey is a myth. I will tell you his story. <laughs> Mr. Montandon said that the monkey had no tail. That is for sure, but he forgot to mention something. It has no tail because it was cut off. I can assure you this, gentlemen, because I saw the amputation. <laughs> Who is speaking here in 1917 was working in a camp for oil exploration in the region of Perilla. The geologist was Francois Deloise. The engineer, Dr. Martin, uh, Martin Tovar Lange. Deloise was a prankster, and often we laughed at his jokes. One day they gave him a monkey with an ill tail, so it was amputated. Since then, Deloise called him El Hombre Mono, or the monkey man. <laughs> Sometime later, I and Deloise went in another region of Venezuela, in an area called Mene Grande. He always walked along the side of his monkey, who died sometime later. Deloise decided to take a photo, and I believe that Mr. Montandon will not deny it is the same photograph that he presented today. Hmm. Um, in 1929, uh, Montandon presented the Amaranthropoides in a public lecture. Hmm. More recently, during a visit to Paris, my astonishment was great visiting the Museum of Man. On top of a monumental scale, filling the back wall, there is a huge photo with the caption, The First Anthropoid Ape Discovered in America. It was the photo of Delois, beautifully modified, meaning of this monkey. The plants yeah. were no longer visible in the background, and it was not possible to understand on which kind of box the monkey was sitting. The trick is done so well that within a few years, the monkey will be over two meters high. It's <laughs> pretty funny. Finally, I must warn you, Montandon was not a good person. After the war, he was executed because he betrayed France, his homeland. Sincerely, your friend, Enrique Tejera. Uh, Enrique, sorry. Enrique. Enrique Tijiri. <laughs> um, so despite Deloitte's role in the fraud, um, he continued his promising geological career. In 1926, he joined a Turkish petroleum company cultivating contacts with geologists. Who gives a shit? He dies, <laughs> as does the legend of the ape. Although to this very day, there remain extremely steadfast pockets of the cryptozoological and con conspiratorial community naturally that uh just won't let it go jesus christ and that my friends is my story well that is very interesting i didn't know how much more there was to the story that i knew of the creepy photo and i thought that was kind of it that some right. people returning from like an expedition was like hey look at this weird thing we found and then people would just be like oh wow i didn't realize how involved that had actually become and how it's wild yeah the montandon revelation is one that i think came out at least i found out about well after like you um i just knew the story to be spooky monkey picture mm -hmm. was it real and now it's turned into absolutely not <laughs> and actually it was racist <laughs> uh the classic milkshake duck situation but yes uh very interesting story and uh people back in the past sucked i guess is the main takeaway it turns out um that is an extremely consistent thing although i'm sure in another you know 30 or 40 years we'll be looking back on this period and our jaws will be even further down onto the floor assuming mm -hmm. we still keep records and are not fighting for water speaking of jaws i have a story to tell you but before we do that perhaps we Dare should we uh, partake of the, the quad <laughs> So, welcome to The Quaff, where Jake and I, basically, most episodes, as in every episode, we drink beer to help us lubricate our brains <laughs> and facilitate our analysis. Analyses. Analyses. <laughs> and uh, we now review those beers in a, a very formal, mathematical way. Yes, using three criteria that, I mean... If you're asking me, everyone knows. Absolutely. The first, of course, is physicality. Basically, how the beer is. <laughs> What's the can look like? What's the bottle look like? What's the beer look like? What's the beer smell like? I don't know if we've tried that yet. We, I think we should just leave that for a part of The second of the... trait, of course, is chugability. <laughs> how fast can you drink this beer? Does it taste good? Is it more of a sipper? Or, or can you just pound it? And 
I mean, it's almost needless to say, but the most important quality of any good beer, joie de vivre. <laughs> I wish your face was somehow in the audio of that. <laughs> so let's get right into it. We have from Evil Twin Brewing. We have, um, I believe it's called Bible Belt. I can't. It's always said a collaboration with Prairie Artisan Ales, but this is a. Uh, an imperial stout aged on coffee, vanilla, chilies, and cacao nibs. I'll say right now, I'm loving the can art very much. It's Absolutely. reminding me of the... Anyone out there who loves Tim and Eric and Zach Galifianakis, they did a series of vodka commercials that are actual commercials. Oh my God. Um, I forget the company, ironically enough. Um, but it's a popular vodka. And I guess the company was like, yeah, you can do whatever you want. Just, you know, mention our product. <laughs> And they fucking leaned in, and it's hilarious because the three of them do excellent bits, and it's got this vibe of sort of just three boys in like yeah, all matching uh, sweaters and uh, and blue jeans, all illustrated versions of them, and um, different like this family weird family photo style illustrations right. of each of them. So that's pretty great. By the way, have you seen any of the um, Dos Equis ads with uh, Ben Schwartz? No, not yet. Oh, they're fantastic. I think it was the same. They probably, he probably got the same exact kind of prompt. Like, just do whatever and and talk about this right. product at some point. It's because it's a beer I don't really care for. No. But I love the commercials he's <laughs> Terrib- doing. Terrible beer. <laughs> Sorry to say. But. Should we uh, open this up to see? Get the full boy. physicality experience. Oh. Oh. Crouchy. A little bit of crouch. Now to pour it. Let me pour it into yours first. Oh, into mine first. Oh, boy. <laughs> well, that sounded kind of a... Sort of a sound at first, yeah, and was, then it became it more of a pouring sound. <laughs> it wasn't great. And now I'll do mine. Oh, yeah. You always get the actual real pour sound. One way or another, you always find a way. Well, that is a deep, dark, very, very imperial-looking dark stout. Dark as the blackest oceans. Oh, oh, God. A charming Ow. clink. <laughs> and now we drink. Well, we haven't actually rated the physicality oh, yet. <laughs> I'm going to give it a 10. I also will give it a 10. Love the can art. The beer is super dark like it should be. Imperial Stout. Let's nice little foam. Almost drowned in it when it happened. Ooh, I got to take another sip. Ooh, that's nice. Uh, I would give this... A chuggability of zero. Zero, okay, right right in the middle. I agree. Normally you think of an Imperial Stout being kind of complex enough that you want to give it more Slam of a it negative face. <laughs> Normally you want to just, you know, probably shotgun it. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, this one I think is, yeah, I would maybe give it a one. A one, yeah, I, I appreciate it. And of course, the joie de vivre. Joie de vivre. What uh, would you say, <laughs> <laughs> Shit. And I would say... Three boys. <laughs> and that has been. I guess that's been the quam. This <laughs> <laughs> shit became my actual thing. Shit. Shall I launch into my story now? Sure. All right. Um. Okay. What is my story? Here we go. Forgot be sticking thing. to it, whatever it is. Mm hmm. Uh. I have a little story from history as well, uh, involving an early 20th century discovery. So not, not dissimilar from your own situation. Uh, mm-hmm. So I have a little bit of of lead up to this first. I want to talk about how it's the fact that ever since we as humans learned that evolution is a thing, we've gone out of our way to misunderstand it. Mm-hmm. And um, one of the biggest hiccups has unsurprisingly come largely from studies of human evolution. And the result of this is still felt in a huge way to this day. Um, to illustrate what I'm talking about, I want you, Wyatt, to do an image search for the word evolution. Listeners, feel free to do the same. Okay. Or if you want, you can even just here. you can even just hazard a guess as to what 95% of the images will be. Let me just type it in A V U L C Z I O N. Ooh. It says uh, BIOS requires more power. Please <laughs> plug in your computer. <laughs> no, of course, it is the image of a monkey morphing into a human <laughs> continuously. <laughs> Over the course of uh, 
however One many different iterations apparently. there are, but yeah, it's a left to right. He's, he's manamorphing, if you will. <laughs> exactly. So yeah, this visual of a left to right progression from a quote unquote primitive form to a more advanced form uh, has been ubiquitous for like forever. It's, it's ridiculous mm-hmm. how much we see this. And yeah, it, it more often than not shows the monkey on the left and then a human on the right with transitional forms in between. And as representations of scientific concepts go, I fucking hate it. Mm-hmm. Uh, not because of the kind of, a, uh, actually, that's not quite how it works sort of aspect of it, but actually because it's fundam- it fundamentally undermines the core concept of evolution. I promise I'm going to get to a story, but the problem here is a concept called orthogenesis, which is the idea of evolution as a progression. Mm-hmm. Um, if you look at a tree of life, you'd see that, yeah, there are is a single common ancestor a few billion years ago, the trunk of the tree. And then, yeah, that life did end up branching out further and further from that as time progressed uh, all the way until the present with a bunch of different branches that are all modern species. But what this very importantly does not mean is that any type of progress is being made. Yeah, changes have happened over time, but they're not going in a certain direction. Uh, They're not going toward a particular goal, certainly. They are just changing form. Yeah, time passes, things change. That's that's it. So speciation, or the process where one species diverges into multiple new species over time, does not have a target it's aiming for. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. So evolution always happens as a result of happenstance. So um, mm-hmm. random mutations that affect Chance key mutation, traits. Right. Yeah, uh, they just yeah, they happen, and then if they make something different, and that actually has an effect on how it survives, cool. So then right. changes in how many of those particular living things reproduce. That's really all that it is. The more of them there are, you know, eventually they, they may be the only one that's around, then a previous form might die off, and that's how you get changed. That's all it is. Uh, mm-hmm. The reason I say all this is because I want to make it clear that there is no such thing as primitive and advanced when it comes to life on Earth, just different ways of living. Um, Except among you social organisms, of course. <laughs> yes. <laughs> that's a little inside social, baseball yeah. for you guys at home. <laughs> social, uh, social structure, the evolution of social behavior. Yes, is, well, much debate among the semantics of that terminology, which is where that joke comes from. Carry on, Jake. Yeah. So as we said before, evolution is not efficient. It is just sufficient. Uh, that nice. is, evolution isn't trying to make the perfect version of a thing, which is often kind of how people look at that. Uh, right. If you look at the uh, the Mario movie, live action Mario movie, do you remember <laughs> I don't it think was, I've ever seen it. It was an abomination for a lot of reasons. Um, uh, but one of the things they have is a machine to evolve or de-evolve people. And that was a way to make them either really dumb or much smarter. And oh, wow. that just is not how that works. Not at all. So evolution isn't trying to make the perfect version of a thing. It's just throwing everything at the wall and seeing what sticks, no matter how poorly it might stick, as long as it's able to stick at all. To If you don't mind my jumping in as well, yeah. I'm thinking of how people also assume that over time things just continuously evolve like there's this never-ending even if it's not necessarily going to a particular destination it is forever going along and changing where in fact parsimony is king simplicity is king so if things are getting it done like you said sufficiency if it ain't broke it's not if it ain't broke it doesn't need to be fixed and so we have species that they call living relics or like you know living fossils when that that already kind of is a misnomer. They are simply fine. The, they're fine. Yeah, <laughs> they're as contemporary as anything else. They just haven't changed actually, in that I, amount of time. I actually want to um, re-examine my throwing at the, everything at the wall and seeing what sticks. Kind of using that idiom. Uh, it's not even really that evolution isn't throwing anything at the wall because it, not at all. It isn't an active process. It's what we call the result of a thing that just kind of happens. Of natural selection, yeah. which is more of like a Play-Doh mold, and certain Play-Dohs come through it in new shapes, yeah. and the rest of them die. So maybe more <laughs> accurately, I'd say a bunch of things kind of multiply and change randomly over time, and then something happens that slams them all against the wall, mm-hmm. and some of them happen to be able to stick. Right. That is evolution channeled through that particular idiom. Right. And uh, that, yeah, so... That's why nothing that is alive is yeah better than another thing that's alive. They're both able to survive and reproduce, and that's all that matters for it. So exactly. they're just different ways of succeeding, and that's why we are a diverse biosphere of infinite variation, and not just single-celled things from way back when. 
And that's why single cell things still exist in abundance too. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. There are just different ways of getting it done. And exactly. that's what we're all doing. And that's why there are monkeys at the same time there are humans. Right. So this has all been a rambling way of leading us to the idea of the missing link. Mm-hmm. The mistaken understanding that evolution is a one-way track from one specific form to a different, more advanced form. Uh, let a bunch right. of scientists to furiously search for a dumb thing. <laughs> <laughs> somehow we had accepted that humans evolved from apes, which evolved from monkey-like primates, but we had not internalized what this really means. All those animals shared common ancestors and then branched off over time and did their own thing. Mm-hmm. They did not turn from one to the other in progression towards an end goal, mm-hmm. and nor was that end goal humans. We're not like, oh, this is this is where it's supposed to all We've head. We it. are, we are the be all and end all of, of what life can be on Earth. It's not what's happening. No. Uh, nonetheless, scientists were convinced that if humans evolved from other apes, and there are other apes kicking around right now, surely there must be some evidence of the thing that comes in between the mm-hmm. missing link. Mm-hmm. And this really isn't that far off base. There's for sure plenty of logic behind what they were doing, and they deserve credit for that. Unfortunately, this concept also came from a pretty strongly religious place, too. Uh, lots of stuff regarding the chain of being and existing as links in that chain. The science would kind of come later after that point of view, and in many ways tried to force the theory of evolution to fit this philosophy. Uh, today, I'm just going to focus only on the science part of that. Cool. And as I said, there was some logic in the science part, but there was just such a fundamental problem with their framing of how stuff worked. Mm-hmm. And I'll, I'll return to that point later, but now, at long last, the goddamn story. Noise. So this, uh, this story I have today is coming from a 2016 Science Magazine article by Michael Price and a 2011 BBC article by I've Kate... I've heard he is always right. <laughs> a 2011 BBC article by Kate Bartlett. So... The tale begins thusly. Mm-hmm. In 1907, a sand mine worker in Germany discovered the jawbone of Homo, uh, Homo heidelbergensis, a 200,000 to 600,000 year old hominin now recognized as a very likely common ancestor to both modern humans and Neanderthals. Mm. The find, compa- compounded by rising uh, national tensions that would eventually lead to World War I, sparked something of an inferiority mm. complex among UK naturalists. So it seemed <laughs> fortuitous when, five years later, Charles Dawson, a professional lawyer and amateur fossil hunter in Sussex, UK, now... Creek enthusiast as well, I believe. Yes, now East Sussex, UK, um, wrote to his friend, paleontologist Sir Arthur Smith Woodward, announcing mm. that he had uncovered a thick portion of a human skull, which will rival H. Heidelbergensis in solidity, near oh the Sussex God. village... The Sussex village of Piltdown. Such dick measuring going on already. Uh-huh. Uh, Smith, Woodward, and Dawson jointly presented their findings to the Geological Society of London in 1912. Uh, from their first excavation, they claimed to have discovered several pieces of a human-like skull, an ape-like mandible, some worn molar teeth, stone tools, and fossilized animals. But based on the bones, color, and the fossilized animals surrounding them, Dawson and Smith, Woodward speculated that the individual lived some 500,000 years ago. Hmm. The UK human evolution research community enthusiastically embraced Euanthropus Dawsoni, better known oh as God. Piltdown Man. Mm-hmm. Its large brain case and ape-like jaw and teeth were exactly what these scientists expected to find from a missing link. However, some overseas experts were skeptical of the match between the skull and jaw. Argued in, uh, that they represented uh, separate human and ape fossils and had become mixed in the same fossil deposit. So in 1913, however, Dawson and Woodward made further finds at Piltdown, including mm. one of a canine tooth. Uh, this was an intermediate size between that of an ape's and a human's tooth, exactly as Woodward had predicted on his model of Piltdown <laughs> Man. Mm-hmm. It's like, oh, cool, look, we found it. it is, it's, it's in between. It's a perfect missing link. <laughs> uh, this seemed to confirm that the jaw was from an intermediate ape-man creature, not just an ape. Uh, then in 1915, Dawson claimed to have found another molar tooth and some skull pieces just two miles from the original Piltdown uh, dig site. These looked similar to those of Piltdown Man, and the find was dubbed Piltdown Man 2 very creatively <laughs> with two family members and the backing of the natural history museum piltdown man thus became generally accepted for the next mm-hmm. 40 years piltdown man remained a key member of the human family tree although in the early 1920s and 30s other fossils being discovered around the world didn't seem to fit with this uh, particular physiology 
So in South Africa in 1924, Raymond Dart discovered the fossil skull of an ape man that had human-like teeth, but since its hmm. brain was much smaller than that of Piltdown, most British scientists dis- dismissed Dart's finding as an ancient ape. That's so ironic. Dart's fossil, however, now known as Tong's child, eventually became recognized as a genuine member of the human family tree officially right. named Australopithecines. There we go. So despite this, British scientists, including Sir Arthur Smith Woodward, continued to believe in Piltdown, as can be seen from Woodward's book, The Earliest Englishman, published in 1948. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Uh, it was not until new technology for the dating of fossils was developed in the late 1940s that Piltdown Man be- uh, came to be seriously questioned once again. Mm-hmm. Uh, in 1949, Dr. Kenneth Oakley, a member of the staff of the universe of the Natural History Museum, tested the Piltdown fossils and found that the skull and jowl were not that ancient. Uh, he joined forces with Professor Joe Weiner and Sir Wilfred, um, so Wilfred Lagrosse Clark from Oxford to apply stringent tests to all the Piltdown remains. They realized that the human-like wear pattern on the teeth had been created by artificially filing down the teeth from an orangutan jaw. Ooh, straight-up fraud. Oh, yeah. The skull pieces were found to have come from an unusually thick-boned but quite recent human skull. It had been simply boiled and stained to match the color and antiquity of the (laughs) built-down gravels. Oh, my God. And although many of the mammal fossils were genuine, they had been stained to match the skull and came from all over the world. It turned out Man. that every single one of the 40-odd finds at Piltdown had been planted. Oh, my God. Yeah. On November 21st, 1953, the news broke and headline writers reveled in the Natural History Museum's embarrassment. Headlines <laughs> like, Fossil Hoax Makes Monkeys Out of Scientists. Ooh, that's a good one. Uh, Weiner and Oakley quickly began an investigation to uncover the identity of the hoaxer, who had had the access, the expertise, and the motive to carry out such an outrageous forgery. Mm-hmm. Weiner set off in pursuit of Charles Dawson. He was the one person who was always present when the discoveries were made, and after his premature death mm. from a septicemia in 1916, no more finds were ever made at Piltdown. So, Go figure. Kind of damning. Uh, uh, right. Weiner went, uh, went to Lewis in Sussex, or to, went to Lewis in Sussex, where Dawson had lived. Or maybe it was Lewis, I don't know. Uh, here he discovered Dawson's unsavory local reputation. He obtained his home, Castle Lodge, by falsely claiming to be buying it for the Sussex Archaeological Society. Oh, what a jerk. And then just kept it for himself to live in. Uh, he also discovered that Dawson, um, Weiner also discovered that Dawson was an ambitious man who had made many supposed discoveries that later turned out to be forgeries. Uh-huh. Uh, although Weiner hinted at Dawson being the perpetrator of the Piltdown forgery in his book, The Piltdown Forgery, uh, he never outright accused him. There was mm. serious doubt about whether he had sufficient knowledge to fake the bones, Dawson that is, uh, that had deceived so many scientists. Was he himself the victim of someone else's elaborate vendetta? Right. Um, the most famous name to be linked to the Piltdown forgery is that of Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, a what? creator of, of Sherlock Holmes. Wow. Uh, Conan Doyle lived near to Piltdown and was a member of the same archaeological society as Charles Dawson. Jeez. As a doctor and fossil collector, he had the relevant knowledge to pull off the hoax. Uh, he may also have left some intriguing clues to the Piltdown hoax in one of his most famous novels, The Lost World, published during the same years mm. as Piltdown was found. Uh, the book was tr- um, the book treated in colorful detail the supposed survival into modern times of dinosaurs and ape men, and included mm-hmm. a tantalizing line about bones being as easy to fake as a photograph. Arthur Conman Doyle. <laughs> uh, most revealing of all is a possible motive. Conan Doyle spent the last decade of his life advancing the cause of spiritualism he believed it was Oof. possible to communicate with the dead which i mean very much a product of his time that was super popular mm-hmm. back then check back to episode three when we first talked about mm-hmm. that and the uh, origin of the ouija board mm-hmm. um his beliefs were mocked by fellow scientists so what better way to shake the arrogance of the scientific establishment than to fake piltdown and expose their fallibility it's fair yeah to get some actual concrete answers as to what the hell was going on we would have to wait for modern molecular biological uh, molecular biological technology to come along wow so he really like passed away thinking like got him this is different people just like posing different different possible uh, i see people, like, sorry, not sure, sure who had had done it um my mistake i got lost in the thread sorry my, yeah weiner thought it was dawson but didn't actually outright accuse him other people thought oh, right, maybe it okay. was conan doyle so there was no real clear answer Gotcha. Um, okay, okay, okay. Isabel de Groot, a paleoanthropologist at Liverpool John Moores University in the UK. She be- is Groot. Yes, exactly. Began looking into the question in 2009. 
applying modern scanning technology and DNA analysis to the original materials. Mm-hmm. So she and colleagues compared computer tomography, or, so CT scans, of the mandible and teeth to known ape specimens and concluded that all of these pieces originated from an orangutan, which they already kind of figured out. But DNA sequencing, hmm. sequencing of the teeth suggested that they all came from the same orangutan, which Whoa. DeGroote suspected the forger or forgers might have obtained from a curiosities shop. The human bones, already recognized to be from at least two individuals, revealed fewer secrets. Uh, although mm. these bones are unusually thick, a fact initially used to argue for their prehistoric origin, DeGroote says that they aren't outside of the range of normal human variation. Mm-hmm. Fortunately, the researchers were unable to extract DNA from the bones, and radiocarbon dating failed. Oh, um, no. Wow. Uh, but it was... Other studies looked at it and thought that it, it seemed like they were probably only a few hundred-year-old bones compared mm-hmm. to you know, the however many thousands of years they were supposed to have been. Mm-hmm. Examining the t- CT scans, DeGroote also noticed a strange off-white putty on the surface of virtually every bone. Mm. The putty had been painted over and stained, and in some cases was used to fill in cracks and gaps that the forger accidentally created. Mm-hmm. Inside the crania and teeth, she found tiny pebbles stuffed inside hollow chambers sealed over with the same putty. Hmm. DeGroote thinks the hoaxer used these pebbles to weigh down the bones, as fossilized bones are noticeably heavier than recent bones. So overall, the team's findings seem to point to a single culprit, and for that, I'll refer to the abstract of their 2016 publication in the Royal Society. Say, don't I know someone who just published with the Royal Society? Yes, I, I may have published a paper there that will be out when this episode is out, I believe. Nice. Oh, how about that? Um, oh, if, if it does come out in time, we'll have to post a link to it. Yes, please. Mm-hmm. And I believe it will be closed access. All right. The one that <laughs> so if you I, are a scholarly nerd, <laughs> you can use some kind of portal to get there yeah. and read about bee stuff. Luckily, the um, the one I'm looking to for this particular study f- uh, about uh, Piltdown Man is the open access um, nice. kind of portion of the Royal Society publishing stuff. So. The end of the abstract says this, quote, The modus operandi was found consistent throughout the assemblage. Specimens are stained brown, loaded with gravel fragments, and restored using filling materials, linking mm. all specimens from the Piltdown 1 and Piltdown 2 sites to a single forger, Charles Dawson. Whether Dawson acted alone is uncertain, but his hunger for acclaim may have driven him to risk his reputation and misdirect the course of anthropology for decades. Right. Piltdown Hoax okay. stands as a cautionary tale to scientists not to be led by preconceived ideas but to use scientific integrity and rigor in the face of novel discoveries. End quote. Mm-hmm. That's the end of the abstract from their paper. So they uh, they dug in and they found some pretty uh, important stuff about what actually had gone on. That's very cool. Wow. Yeah. Oh, my goodness. So important. The scientific community is looking for, ostensibly looking for, the truth of the matter when it comes to natural phenomena essentially all of which we will never be able to fully explain because it Mm -hmm. is just so deep and so complex. Yes. But it unfortunately, as we've discussed before, leaves scientists very much exposed to the seductions of their own minds Mm -hmm. and the allure of evidence that appears to support theory. Exactly. Because basically people fell for this hoax because it allowed them to believe what they wanted to believe already. Right. Given the right. answer they needed in order to fulfill the narrative they had already kind of agreed on as far as how stuff was supposed to work. Right. Um, so fascinating, though, that uh, they could unravel the mystery. Like the, yeah, we talked about, A scientist actually found the first hard evidence of Australopithecus, which is an actual human ancestor. And then he was shut down because the results didn't look like the preferred Piltdown Man. <laughs> uh, it is funny. Yeah, so it's I'll, it's ironic too because I think it like scrambles the the device in a sense where we know there is or we expect there is a particular explanatory variable let's say and so we're trying to fit we wind up trying to fit pieces to that mm-hmm. or you know some theory and yeah exactly you can have evidence that is actually truer but because it hasn't met your expectation you're like mm, no <laughs> go on. Yeah, um, ultimately the scientists were looking for a lost connection between ape and human. And as I hinted earlier, they, they had a problem with their framing of that to begin with as far as just that mm-hmm. was totally the wrong way to look at it. They should have been focusing not on the forward progression from A to B, but on mm-hmm. the transition from A to B and C. Mm-hmm. So instead of a missing link, they should have been looking for a last common ancestor. Mm-hmm. The idea behind that just being that instead of one thing becoming another thing and then another thing all just in a linear fashion, 
one thing over time might change into some Three different or stuff. Or a hundred things. Yeah, and then those things might coexist, or one might die off, and some of them might last. And it's just there's no rhyme or reason to it. It just happens. Exactly. And so the reason I care so much about clarifying these points on evolution is because of how widespread the misunderstanding is nowadays and how it's really not really most people's fault that they don't understand it. Unless you've actively studied this stuff, you probably didn't internalize a ton of it unless other than just what you kind of heard in school or whatever. Right. Uh, and unless you're a biologist, you probably don't think about it on like, <laughs> think about the ins and outs of it on a daily basis. Like or even an hourly basis like we do. Yeah. <laughs> And, uh, and yeah, rightly so, you'd be very much forgiven for doing other things with your life, unlike us. Uh, however, this means you likely fell into the groove of just kind of knowing that evolution happened and maybe that it is still happening. And you probably mm-hmm. have in mind that left to right, that left to right image of monkey to human progression because it's just right. it's everywhere. It's like, okay, that's just kind of what it is. But that image, that, that idea is a problem and I want to fix mm-hmm. that problem. Mm-hmm. So basically, yeah, we're looking to. We wanted you fine listeners to um, try and hit you with some good science by having mm-hmm. each of us tell stories of bad science. I guess exactly. <laughs> <laughs> and I think the title of today's episode is "Monkey Business." Monkey business, excellent. Um, um, yeah. So that is the story of Piltdown Man. I think I've heard much as you had with the Deloitte's ape tale. I have, of course, heard of Piltdown Man, but I have only heard you know, little bits and pieces of the total story. Yeah. And even then that was years ago. Um, so very glad for the refresher and full length, um, presentation. It's very interesting and, uh, very illustrative example of, as you've described a chronic issue in the scientific community, certainly among biologists, Mm -hmm. but I'm sure this extends to other fields of, uh, you know, scientific endeavors. So, Enjoy some science out there, y'all. <laughs> That's ostensibly part of what we're about. So <laughs> Yes, so deal with it. <laughs> I dare say, do we want to boot up the Pander device? Yeah, let's switch it on. Ooh, that is there we go. particularly intense today. So Boy. this is the, um, the NCAA device with its built-in Pander function we've added on, which stands for Wyatt. That's right. The patron appreciation neural dive for evaluation of risk? That's correct. (laughs) Oh, I did that from memory, and it was extremely hard. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Even though it's written on the side of the machine, and I read it. Yes, it's it's an arcane (laughs) kind of cursed computer slash relic, which we plug directly into our brains in order to calculate what cryptids in the world our Patreon patrons individually need to be aware of. Right. Yeah, without further ado, dare who I guess go we should, first is just, uh, which. We'll plug in, and I think it's my turn to go first, so we can just both Alrighty. plug in here. Let me plug this. Ooh, yeah. Yep. And, uh, Didn't even feel it. I am going to focus in on Maggie Rose. Mm. Maggie, we advise you to be mindful of... The blue-headed black bear. Hmm. This was a black bear spotted by a driver on the side of a British Columbian highway. It took the appearance of a regular bear, except with a cobalt blue head. Wow. Uh, the driver thankfully was able to get a photograph of this bear, which clearly shows what? that, yeah, it's it's just, its head was blue. Aww. That poor bear, he looks like he got splashed or something. It's not known why the bear's head was blue. Um, one theory is a genetic condition known as partial melanism, which can apparently mm-hmm. cause bright blue coloration in mammals. Another theory is that the bear literally just stuck its head in a bucket of paint. Yeah. And then, of course, some folks have just said that it was a hoax of some kind. Maggie, if you find yourself on a highway in British Columbia, perhaps it is your destiny to at last reveal to the world once and for all why the blue-headed black bear is blue-headed. Someone <laughs> needs to tell that bear's story, and if I'm interpreting the machine correctly, that's someone is you and thank you for supporting us on patreon thank you very much all right let me see here hmm. mom i mean uh lynn from <laughs> springfield massachusetts uh be on the lookout for me <laughs> a cryptid you reported from java indonesia described as a bizarre hybrid mystery creature with the head of a feline and the body of a goat or sheep the name mm-hmm. comes from witnesses who have heard it make a long, laughing-like sound. 
Aha. If the creature, uh, I guess this is good news. If the creature encounters a human, it apparently just turns tail and runs away through the forest, letting out long, eerie, snickering or giggling-like sounds. Mm. <laughs> Much like myself. Um, <laughs> it is also reported that the sound is like the bleeding of a sheep. So, maybe some kind of Indonesian cousin of the llama or alpaca? Hmm. I don't really know. Either way, you're welcome and thank you so much. <laughs> Both for helping me be alive and for supporting our show. Yeah, thank you to all of our patrons. And those of you listening, for just a dollar, you can make a difference in our lives and you can have your own cryptid calculated on the show for just a dollar. Yes, indeed. You can help us NPR our shit and continue making this sweet, sweet tent. Yes. It's very much thanks to Patreon support that we are even able to continue doing this show long distance. So... Mm-hmm. Any longtime listeners, if you're loving what you're hearing, please spare us the cost of a coffee a month and help support the show. You'll get perks, and we'll get to eat, and we'll all win. Yes. Because, yeah, at, a, at even a dollar, you can get the, the whole um, pander function happening. At levels above that, you get really cool stuff, and, yeah, you help the show. You warm our hearts. We love you all even more than we already do. But, yeah, I think we should probably unplug this thing before it's too late. There we go. That is our show for today. Next week, we will be back again with something. Yeah, I don't know if we've actually looked. Let me see if we have anything on the schedule <laughs> right now. We currently do not, so we'll figure it out before that. It's a mystery for us all. We'll all figure it out. We'll all get together again, and we'll all have a good time. We'll see you there. Bye. Bye. Bye.